a reading from the 118th Psalm. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I will tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. This is the gospel of the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we, uh, we think on these words that in some way we've tried to enact and embody in our own procession this morning, we've tried to imagine ourselves as the crowd, as people that are reacting and responding to the person of Jesus. So as we think on what this might mean uh, for us this morning, would you give us 
ears to hear, would you help us to have soft hearts that respond, welcoming Jesus as our Savior. So guide us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, during this Lenten season, we've been thinking about how Jesus's life was very intimately connected with themes of justice, and specifically uh, themes of biblical justice. In other words, how does the scripture, when it talks about justice, articulate what that would be, right? And we've said that, um, that the idea of justice in the Bible is the establishment of a community in which the most vulnerable persons of that society would be cared for. In other words, everyone in the society sort of uses their relative power, whatever it is, their relative gifts, their strengths, their talents, their resources, vulnerably for the sake of others. In other words, there's a moving out. There's not a sort of hoarding. There's not a sort of fearful anxiety about what we might lose, but there's a willingness to just carefully care for the other. That's the picture of the biblical, the biblical notion of justice as you read through the Bible. You'll just see that show up over and over and over again. And when Jesus is at the outset of his ministry, as Luke is writing that story, in Luke chapter 4, we looked at this a few weeks back, right? In Luke chapter 4, Jesus, um, Jesus takes the text of Isaiah 61. He's reading in the context of a worship service. And that's a text in which Isaiah imagined this day, this great day of the Lord's favor, right, which we said was the eschatological moment of Jubilee, right? In other words, it is the great and final anticipated day when peace and justice is everywhere, when the poor are cared for, when the oppressed are released, when, you know, when, when, when the blind see, uh, when um, the captives are set free, when, when sins are forgiven, it's on and on and on, right? There's this imagined prophetic moment that Israel was longing for. They were waiting for God to show up in the world in this really unique way uh, in, in the Messiah and, and, and bring forth the kingdom of God, which is the kingdom of justice. And Jesus says, that's what my life is all about. Um, what's interesting to read this text, it's interesting to think about this whole series on justice, really, in light of just our very palpable awareness that our world doesn't look very just. Uh, Our city doesn't look very just, Um, right? Yesterday, uh, some 800 events were held right? The march for our lives, right? I mean, in other words, why was that happening? It's interesting to think about these events, this, this cry for justice, or even the events of Palm Sunday in the context of some of the things that were going on in our own city and around the world yesterday as students, in other words, the most vulnerable of society, rose up and said, you know, something's got to change in our world, Persons with power need to use their power differently to bring about a just society. And that means something for people like us, right? Justice is a profound theme in the pages of Scripture. And when we think about what God wants for us, it's so easy for us sometimes in the evangelical sectors of the church as we, we sort of we, we bifurcate uh, you know, God's notion of what he's doing. We sort of think mostly about my need for personal forgiveness, And we very often sort of hang out in that space and we don't think about the implications of a restored life with God and what that means for the creation of a just society and a just world. And Jesus' idea was much larger than mere forgiveness. 
It was that you and I would begin to live in the likeness of children of God, not only toward God in the way we relate to him, but the way we relate to one another. So Palm Sunday, right? It's the beginning of Holy Week. Um, and so Jesus has been sort of, if you were to read through the Gospels, you get all of these encounters with Jesus that sort of, you know, describing and taking us into stories um, in which Jesus is enacting his notion of justice, right? And then you arrive at Palm Sunday as the moment when he enters Jerusalem uh, in this last and final week of his life. And uh, we want to think about how does that mean and what does it reveal to us about how Jesus conceptualized his own use of power and what it meant with regarding uh, in, in bringing the kingdom of God. Now, so three things I want us just to observe about of this very, very familiar text. Uh, the entrance of Jesus, the response of the crowd, and the tears of Jesus. Now, first, so the entrance of Jesus. <clears throat> Jerusalem is the center of power, right, in the Jewish world. It's the center of life and religion and culture, right? The temple is there. And what happens in the temple? That's where sacrifice is given. It's where worship happens. In other words, it's this very highly symbolic space in which heaven and earth connect. And it's the one space on earth in which the Jewish community believed that happened, right? It was in the context of their life with Yahweh, their life with the one true God, that, that heaven and earth connected in that space of worship, and Jesus is going there. And it makes sense that he would go there. His whole life has been angled toward there, aimed in that direction, right? But how should Jesus enter Jerusalem? If you were the king, if you were the sort of the heir to David's throne, how would you enter Jerusalem? What would you do? Uh, and now the interesting thing, right, is that everybody has an idea about that. Everybody had an idea back then about that, right? Uh, they, 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 they knew, for example, if you were a Jewish person living in Israel at the time, you would think, we want Rome off our backs. I mean, among other things, that's one of the primary things that's on your mind. And how do you get Rome off your back? Well, you have a new king who comes on and challenges the rule of Rome, right? How do you challenge the rule of Rome? Well, you need to be on a war horse. Because Rome's got a pretty powerful army. They're tough folks, right? So there's this imagination of that. So there's a Jewish imagination for that. There's, a, 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 so there's even a Roman imagination for how you, uh, <clears throat> how, how you would sort of, uh, with the realities you'd have to deal with. So here, here Jesus, how will he display his royal identity as the king of Israel, the king of the world? How will he do that? Uh, the surprise is the script that he takes to himself, right? Uh, it's a very scripted moment, by the way, right? Uh, Jesus takes this ancient script out of the pages of Scripture, uh, you know, Zechariah 9 or Psalm 118 that we read just a few moments ago. Um, and the surprise is that rather than a war horse, Jesus chooses to enter Jerusalem in this sort of a little over a mile ride into Jerusalem, on the cult of a donkey. So he sends, right, two of his unnamed disciples here to go fetch this donkey. Uh, and it's a cult. In other words, this is a, this is a donkey that's not yet been broken for, um, uh, for riding, you know. And so they're to, to go and get him, and they're given some instructions, right? It's likely, it's not uncommon, that someone might say, hey, what are you doing? That's my donkey. Right? And so Jesus says, someone might say, hey, what are you doing? And you're to say what? You're to say, well, the Lord needs him. Um, after all, he is the king and he has the right to bring other person's property into a space of use for himself. Authority, power, but the cult of a donkey. 
Jesus has chosen to echo, right, this script built out of Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118. Psalm 118 was a coronation psalm, and it was read routinely and enacted on the anniversary of the king's coronation. It would be something that you would do to celebrate the reality that you have a king. In other words, that you live in a space of peace, right? It was a psalm that was selected and used in peacetime, not wartime. In other words, it's post-victory, not pre-victory. But wait, you know, Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and there's this challenge to his authority because Rome occupies Israel. What's going on? His royal entrance is a claim to kingship and to absolute authority, but it's not a claim like the claim of Rome. And it's not even a claim like the claim that the Jewish leaders imagined victory would need. It's this really humble moment in which Jesus displays his political power, his absolute authority as the peaceable king. And he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. He comes into this great city in which heaven and earth meet on a donkey where he will encounter what? The violence against his own person and body on the cross. In other words, Humanity, collectively, right, Israel and Rome, right, Jews and Gentiles will rise up against Jesus to bring his life down. But he's processing not on a war horse, but on the cult of a donkey. Now, okay, so put this in in modern vernacular. If you were live tweeting this, what would you say, right? There's a sort of interest in live tweeting things here in our culture, right? Hashtag on a donkey. That's what Jesus is doing. That's how he's processing. Um, If you were our president, what would you say? Weak, loser. You know, take your pick. Because Jesus' power, his display of power, looks absolutely contradictory and ineffective against the way human beings in every society and every government that has ever existed wield power. There's something really, really different that's going on in Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. And we're meant to take note of it. We're meant to hold on to it. And we're meant to let it shape the way we think about our own use of power. Now, second, the response of the people. Well, it's as dramatic as Jesus is, right? They just fall in line with the script. In other words, Jesus has taken this script out of Zechariah 9 and out of, out of Psalm 118, and the people just automatically fall in line. They get on board, and so they're stripping branches off the palms, right? You know, so you had props today, right? You know, you've, you've got your palm branches, right? You, you know, they're stripping those down, right? So imagine yourself in the crowd that morning. Imagine that you're there in that context And out in the distance you see Jesus, this one that you've been following, you know, you see him processing on this donkey and sort of these crowds are sort of assembling along his way and you're thinking, well, there he is. There he is. He's the one, right? He's, this is the guy, right? He teaches differently than other people. When you read scripture, it sounds like there's more profundity, there's a power, there's an authority, there's an engagement in his voice, there's a knowledge of it that seems so different from anyone else you've ever heard teach. It's unique. And then there are all these stories, right? Maybe you were there in that house, remember the story, when when some of the followers of Jesus were so intent on getting 
their paralyzed friend in front of Jesus that they have to disassemble the roof and let him down. Maybe you were part of that household. Maybe you saw that. And there's those rumors. Maybe you've heard about Lazarus's being, Lazarus being raised from the dead. Maybe you were one of the crowd that's listening to the profound teaching of Jesus and you were hungry that afternoon and the loaves and the fishes were multiplied and your stomach was filled. And just go on and on, right? The, all of these rumors, all of these stories that are being circulated around, in and around Jerusalem about this person, Jesus, and you see him coming and the crowds begin to sort of mass around Jesus and they're stripping the palm branches and they're, they're beginning to wave them and they're shouting Hosanna, which means like, Lord, save now. Lord, save now. You see, if you were one of the vulnerable persons in society... What do you know? You know that the only way that you get release is if someone says, I will hold power differently. I will use and wield my my power, whatever it is, whatever little piece it is, I will wield it differently. You know? Nick, I will answer out of curiosity the phone call. I will hold my relative power differently than it is held in the world. And so you're one of the vulnerable. You're on the outskirts. You suffer. You struggle. You're not at the center of everything. And here is this one who has loved you. And you hear the stories. Of course you're stripping the palm branches. Of course you're throwing off your cloak no matter how cold it is, and you're throwing it on the ground and you're shouting Hosanna. They follow their part of the rituals. So uh, I dabble in sociology, some of you know. One of my uh, favorite articles is by uh, a sociologist by the name of Edward Shields. He was a sociologist at the University of Chicago and he and another colleague wrote a very interesting paper that was a study of Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. Now, why would you, you think, well, how, why would you study that? Wait, some of you have watched The Crown. You know why you'd study that. So why study that? Well, because Queen Elizabeth II was, her coronation happens in a moment of tremendous cultural and political and transition. There's a lot of ambiguity around something like a monarchy. There's emergence of democratic states. There's all kinds of things going on. And it just so happens that her coronation uh, at that moment was one of the most grand displays uh, that was crafted, but also celebrated by the people. So if you want to think about what was happening in the streets of London, yes, think Eagles Super Bowl parade, and you sort of get close to that. So Shields is curious as to what's going on in a moment like that. And he quotes something Pascal said at the outset of his article. And it's just this line, the heart has its reasons the mind does not suspect. The heart has its reasons the mind does not suspect. And he's getting at this. He says, you know, in these moments of festival procession, in these moments of festivity, these sort of grand public displays, it's a moment in which persons in society tap into the sacred. It's a moment when they, their hearts, right, which is, a, which is a way of sort of talking about the very core of our being, right? Who are you in your deepest moment, your deepest self? What he was saying is that in their hearts, 
they wanted something that this coronation displayed. What I want to think about in connection with Jesus is this. Is that in this moment, the crowds, as they're shouting Hosanna, it's this profound moment of the heart in which they're longing for a world of justice and peace in which the vulnerable are truly cared for, in which power is held well. It is stewarded in behalf of others. There's a longing for that, and even though they may not be able to put all the right words to it, they take the words that are available to them in the script, and they're shouting out Hosanna. And I suspect that the student marches yesterday were something of a heart event as well. Palm Sunday, the heart has its reasons that the mind does not suspect. But in the crowd, not everyone is following the script, right? You know, you catch that part, right? Um, there are the Pharisees, right? And we've, you've read through the Gospel of Luke or you've read through the Gospel of, of, of Matthew, Mark, or John. One of the things that you know is that the teachers of Israel, in other words, people like me, right? People that study the Bible for a living, people that spend a lot of their time trying to understand what Scripture says, those are the persons that struggled the very most with Jesus. And here they show up again. Their voice is brought to the surface again as they sort of look to Jesus as a teacher, but not Messiah, not king, and they ask Jesus to rebuke the crowds. Why? Because their minds know where the hearts of these people are headed. Their minds know what the hearts are tapped into, what the hearts are longing for, and Jesus isn't their guy. He's not their guy. And Jesus says, if they don't cry out, the stones will cry out. Stacey and I were driving over this morning. She said, what does that mean? Can a stone talk? And maybe that's just the point, right? That what Jesus is saying about his own identity as king and the kingdom of God and the justice of God's kingdom is that it is so certain that something as utterly improbable as a stone speaking could happen. You can't stop the kingdom that God is bringing. It is inevitable. Why? Because the king is here. The day of visitation is now, it's today, and that's what Jesus is getting at. Now you might think, look, I've read to the end of the story, and I know what happens to the crowd, right? I mean, of course you do, because we're moving through this week of Holy Week, and you know that this same type of crowd that's gathered in this festival moment inside of Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover, you know that this same type of crowd, these, maybe even some of these same people, the same voices that are crying out, Hosanna, that their voice will turn to a very different cry, crucify him. So what kind of a faith is that? And I was thinking about that this, this yesterday, actually. And I thought, you know, it's a faith like mine. And it's a faith like yours. If we're honest, like, if, if we're honest about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, it means this. It means that there are moments in your life when you are attuned to Jesus, right? You, you connect with his story and your heart is moved to embrace his story and you, you feel love towards him. You, you feel warmth toward Jesus. You think, yes, I want a king like that, right? But then 
there are these other conflicted moments in our own earthly stories when, when you recognize, I have to recognize, we do this every week when we confess our sin. What are we doing? We're saying, my story's inconsistent. My love grows cold. My mind deserts. My heart moves to other things, right? And that's who we are as followers of Jesus. But here's the beauty of the story. The absolutely beautiful thing about the story is that the un the only unchangeable reality in it is the love of the king. Not your love. Not my love. It's the love of a king who's riding on the colt of a donkey, right? No one expected that he would relocate, you know, that he would relocate the work of the temple where sacrifice happens to a hill outside of Jerusalem. No one suspected, right, that he would actually, in his own act of worship, become the festal offering. But this is a king who says, I will, I will hold power to the very end of my life in behalf of the vulnerable, you. One last observation before we think about implications for us in our community. Jesus weeps. Over the city of Jerusalem, right? Um, and he says something, right? If, if, if only you knew the day of salvation's visit, right? In other words, God is in your midst. Salvation has come to this house. Salvation has come to this community. God is present to this community in a way that he's never been present before. And it's an absolutely amazing moment. But he's in this king who's on the cult of a donkey. The leaders of Israel, however, right? The social, the political, and the religious structures of society and the people that were the centers of power in that society, they've not recognized Jesus as king. They've not recognized those things which make for peace, right? The visitation of the king himself. Elsewhere, Jesus describes the crowds of Jerusalem as he moves toward them as what? As like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, here are these people. There are no leaders. There is no king. They don't recognize the king that is among them. And then Jesus, in this prophetic moment, recognizes some really hard truths. And that is that their resistance of Israel, the resistance of Jerusalem, has reached such the height of this closed posture toward God that they're reaching a point of no return. And Jesus weeps. He weeps. Hard words to hear. So as we sort of close out our time this morning, how do, we, how do we relate to a story that is just so familiar to us that we repeat year after year after year after year and probably in between times? How do we relate to this? And I think it's just very simply the question of do we know what makes for peace? Right? Maybe it's the question that Luke, through Jesus, right, that Jesus sort of leaves uh, his own description, they don't know what makes for, do you know what makes for peace? And the two pieces, the two components here are just quite straightforward. It's the king himself, the king of peace, and it's our response to him. It's the people's response to him. A Christian is someone that begins to follow the script from the heart. In their deepest selves, we begin to connect with Jesus' kingship. In other words, we, in just very simple ways, recognize 
He's the one that God's bringing justice through. He's the one that God's bringing healing through. He's the one that God's bringing forgiveness through. He's the one who reconnects us to God. He's the one who reconnects us to one another. He's the one who reconnects us to a different way of being human in the world. And you just begin to join the crowd and you fall in line and you break off your palm branch and you wave and you say, Hosanna, salvation now. Both are required for peace. A friend who extends it and a friend who receives it. Without it, you only have this lopsided relationship. And the picture of Jesus is of God in person in our world, extending peace, inviting us into peace. So which side of Jesus' hard words are you on? The side that recognizes what makes for peace, the day of the visitation, or the side that hasn't? And I think that's the only way to sort of sit with this story is to enter this week reflecting on our own confessions of faith. And in the midst of that, remembering that in all of the changes about our own lives and all of our struggles with faith, our moments of high, our moments of low, our high confession, our doubts, all of these things, that we would remember more than anything a king who knew the heart of human beings and who loved us anyway and extends his peace that we might taste its reality and its beauty and its glory for ourselves and change the way we live in our world now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on these words of Christ that we would take them to heart, you would soften us, and you would help us to find hope and you would help us to be persons who just instinctively begin to shout, Hosanna, blessed is the one who came, comes in the name of the Lord. So would you come, Jesus, and make your home among us and in our hearts, that we may be a community that truly celebrates you uh, in our life together and in our world as persons in a community of hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.